Well, a four-year-old little girl was heard whispering in her newborn brother's ear these words. She said, baby brother, can you tell me what God sounds like? I'm beginning to forget. It's the loss of wonder. It's one thing when you've experienced wonder in a profound kind of way, but then wonder seems to have in our culture today especially a short shelf life. It doesn't seem to last. Like, I don't know if you remember Christmas when you were a kid, and it was all filled with magic, but then you grew up. And, and maybe when you first went to Disneyland, you know, the, the Magic Kingdom, it's not called that for, for no reason. It was like so magical, but then you went back a few years later or maybe decades later, and it's like, it's not so magical. <laughs> or maybe it was your first love, or any time you fall in love, there, there's that magic that's part of it, but... The magic ends sometime. It happens. It's not, we don't intend it to happen, but it does happen. An old rancher was once heard over saying how cows got onto open roads, and he said, you want to know how cows do that? Cows nibble their way into lostness, he said. They nibble at this little clump of grass, and then they see another little clump of grass, and they nibble on that clump of grass, and then they see this other clump of grass over here, and they nibble on that, and they see another clump of grass over here, and they nibble on that, and pretty soon they've gone through a fence line, and they're out on the open road. They just nibble their way into lostness. And it's a sad thing when it happens. To lose the wonder... Dennis Copeland uh, re remarks about this and, and writes about it. Excuse me, Douglas Copeland. He says this, Sometimes I think that people who we should feel saddest for are the people who once knew what profoundness was, but who lost or became numb to the sensation of wonder. It happens to all of us, and it happens in the spiritual realm as well, especially when it comes to encountering the person of Jesus. You know, I don't know if you remember back to when you first became a follower of Jesus, if you're in the room and you are a follower, but man, it was like everything was fresh, everything was new. I felt lighter. The burdens of my sin and the shame and, and the humiliation that accompanied all that just seemed to, to be off of my shoulders. Life felt vibrant and alive in a way I never could have imagined life to feel. And if you felt that same thing, maybe you understand it, but then... Then you grow up, and maybe you get into theology, or maybe you get into ministry, maybe you get into leadership, maybe there's a certain biblical subject that starts to capture your attention, like prophecy or creationism or, or something in there. Maybe you get into recovery, or maybe there's a cause that grabs your heart, and those are all good things. But what happens to us is very, very slowly, Jesus recedes into the background. He just becomes a distant speck in the rear view mirror. And you don't hear him the same way. You don't see him as clearly as you used to see him. You don't even kind of realize he's around as much because he seems so distant and so far away. And we lose the wonder. And I wonder if it isn't healthy at certain points to just simply say, hey, maybe it's time to recapture that sense of wonder. Maybe what would be really, really healthier for us would be to just every three years for everyone to forget everything they've ever learned about Jesus and then relearn him all over again. Because I think this is important for every single one of us. This weekend, what I want to do is I want to re-explore the person of Jesus with you. I want us to take a second look and maybe a third look and a fourth look. I want, to, I want us to kind of re-examine who Jesus is because I believe this to the very core of my being. That Jesus is the most breathtaking, brilliant, 
arresting magnetic personality in all of human history. I agree with Brian McLaren when he writes about this very thing and says, as an educator and as a pastor for over 30 years and just as a human being, I have had one lasting obsession, the fascinating, mysterious, uncontainable, uncontrollable, enigmatic, vigorous, surprising, stunning, dazzling, subtle, honest, genuine, and explosive personality of Jesus. And I think that too. And this weekend, what I'd love to do is I'd just love to sharpen our picture I'd love to enhance it and enrich it, but more than anything else, what I hope will happen to you is that you breathe in the wonder of Jesus again as we approach these scriptures. And believe me, it matters more than you think it does. How we think about Jesus, how we uh, feel about Jesus, how we interact with Jesus and relate to Jesus has profound implications for all of our lives. Your ability to access and identify your unique identity as a human being rests on Jesus, on where you stand with him. Your ability to forge close relationships rests upon Jesus. Your ability to punch through quitting points and trauma that happens to you in life all depends on where you stand with Jesus. And maybe most important of all, your eternal destiny hangs in the balance on what you believe and what you think and how you relate to Jesus. It's all there. And if you like filling in the blanks in your outline, here's your fill in the blank for this morning, and it's simply this. We need to recapture the wonder of Jesus so that we can be recaptivated by him. We need to recapture the wonder of Jesus so that we could be recaptivated by him. And I believe that the more we are exposed to Jesus, the more brilliant we will find him. And the more brilliant we will find him, the more willing we're going to be to give more of ourselves to him in the process. So what I want to do over the course of the next 45 minutes or so is I want to drill down deeply into one of the great super texts of the New Testament. You know, you guys have heard of superfoods, right? Those foods that are so uh, nutrient-rich, so dense with nutrients and vitamins and minerals and everything that our bodies need that they, they become almost a complete source of, of, of food in, of themselves. We call them whole foods, so to speak. Well, there are certain texts in the Bible that are so dense with spiritual truth so concentrated with nutrients that they, you just simply can't avoid them. They're really, really important for us. And one of those texts we're going to look at today, it's found in the opening verses of the book of John. So if you have a Bible or your smartphone, fire it up. We're going to look at the Gospel of John starting in the very first chapter, in the very first verse. And let me give you a few quick facts about John to orient you a little bit to this book if you haven't had a chance to read it at length or you don't know that much about it. The Gospel of John is a unique gospel. Anyone ever here ever been to Crater Lake? Yeah? I, I was at Crater Lake about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe it was a little longer than that. And I could not believe it. I mean, you'd hear stories and you hear people talk about it, but you, you gaze at the water down there and it is unbelievably blue and clear and you can see to the bottom and it's crystalline and you just think to yourself, how did it ever get that way? How does water get like that? Well, the Gospel of John is the Crater Lake of the Gospels in the New Testament. It gives us a view of Jesus that is not seen in the other three gospel accounts. In fact, 92% of the gospel of John is unique to that gospel. You will not find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 92%. And what's great about that 92% is that largely it revolves around personal encounters people have with Jesus. Extended conversations. Intimate conversations. And it's why the gospel of John is known as the intimate gospel. And the first 18 verses of this gospel, they portray um, 
just an overture. So within this gospel, you have these very intimate stories and encounters. In chapter one, you have the, the disciples and the calling the disciples given in detail that we don't find in any of the other gospels. In chapter two, the, the marriage Cana in Galilee, the interactions with Jesus and his mother. Chapter three, the conversation with Nicodemus. Chapter four, the woman at the well. Chapter five, the, the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. You get into the, the later chapters in chapter 13 through, through 16, and that's the upper room discourse, not seen in any of the other gospels. You get to chapter 17, it's the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, this long prayer that Jesus prays there on that night before, uh, that night that he was betrayed. And you don't see that anywhere else. And then you even have the conversation with Pilate, the back and forth that Jesus has with Pilate in chapter 18. And then you have the, res uh, the resurrection stories, but you also have the restoration stories for Peter in chapter 21. All of them are around these very personal encounters. And here's the point of that. John gives us a window into the, the heart and the soul and the mind of Jesus that you cannot get anywhere else. It helps us pick him up and to get him in a different kind of way than the other gospel accounts. And so as we read through, we're going to come to these this first five verses. The first 18 are like an overture that you'd find in a, in a musical, hitting all the musical scores a little bit so you kind of get an idea, and then you're going to hear them in, in more depth later on throughout the musical. In the same way, John does that in those first 18 verses, hitting the high points that he's going to take on throughout the entire book of John. But it's these first five verses that highlight for us the person and the identity of Jesus. And so let's dive right in. We're in chapter 1, verse 1. And John starts where you should always start when you're talking about trying to get to know a person, and that's at the beginning. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, John says, or writes, was the Word. Now we're just going to stop there for a minute. In the beginning. In the beginning. Obviously, John is trying to mentally transport us back to Genesis 1-1, the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He uses the same exact phraseology and grammar that the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament uses for Genesis 1-1. And obviously, the idea is to remind us he's taking us all the way back to the very beginning of the material universe, the very beginning of time. But you'll notice he says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And I want you to circle this idea of the Word, all right? What's a Word? What's the word? The Greek term lagos here gets its meaning from the Hebrew term dabar, word. It kind of draws all of the essential usages that the Old Testament uses for this word. And literally, the, the, the root idea of dabar is to push out that which is from behind. To get that which is behind out in front. See, we do this with words, by the way. We say to ourselves, well, I'll never know the mind of a person unless they actually tell me what they're thinking, right? Ladies, do you not do this with your husband? What are you thinking, honey? Please tell me what you're thinking. I can't read your mind, right? You'll never know. Does anyone know what I'm thinking right now? What am I thinking about right now? Anyone want to take a guess? Bible. Donuts. I love donuts, all right? But you would never know that until I tell you that. And what happens is, from my diaphragm, I force air up into the vocal cords, the larynx. My mouth forms, it takes certain forms to form syllables or words, and out comes a word. It's communication. And because God is pure, undiluted, uncreated spirit, 
we would never be able to know anything about him unless God actually reveals himself to us. He pushes out that which is from behind. And he does this uniquely in the person of Jesus. John actually reinforces this and nails this in verse 14 when he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? Robert Oppenheimer, the great physicist who worked on the atomic bomb, says this, If you really want to communicate an idea, wrap it in a person. And this is exactly what God did. He communicated himself in the person of Jesus. So the phrase reveals a very stunning truth to us, and that's this. Jesus has always existed. Jesus didn't start existing when he was conceived in the womb of a young Jewish woman. He didn't just start there. In the beginning was the word. And what I want you to know about the word was here is that it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek language, which has the idea of conveying continuous action in the past time. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All of those things, the idea of was here, very prominent. And he's drawing our attention simply to this very, very important fact that Jesus existed and has always existed before the material beginnings of the universe, before the material beginnings of time or this world, before he ever was formed in the womb of a young Jewish girl. Jesus has always been. And what it tells me is something very important that I hold on to, and that's this. He's not going away anytime soon. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He is not going to change. And he's not going to go away. And I'll tell you something. When I need something to ground my life in, I want to ground my life in something that's an anchor, that is sure, that is certain, that is steady, that's always going to be there, that's never going to leave and never going to forsake me. And man, if you're looking for someone like that, Jesus is your guy. He's your guy. But then John adds something else here as well. Takes another part. Look at the second half of verse 1. And the word was with God. The Greek here is prostantaon. And the idea behind it is face to face. What it hints at is a distinct and separate personage, someone who can be face-to-face with someone else. And the word was with, face-to-face with God. Separate and distinct. I know it's mind-boggling, but separate and distinct. And it hints largely at this one thing that I really want to communicate to you today, and that's this, the relational nature of God and the relational nature of Jesus. This is reinforced in verse 2, right? He was in the beginning with God. God. Jesus is hyper-personal, hyper-relational. He's not some impersonal force in the universe. He's not some ground of being. He's not an idea. He's not a concept. He's not a, a creed or set of propositions. He's a living, breathing person, a living, breathing person. Mark Labberton used to tell the story of meeting with an executive that he was trying to help understand this the executive, help understand him to understand Jesus. And as they were having this discussion, he, he, he said to him, well, you know, I think you should read through the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark, one of the Gospels, start, start to get an idea of Jesus. And the executive looked at him, he said, can't you just give me a few bullet points about him? Like you could reduce Jesus to a few little bullet points. 
right? That's like trying to reduce the Mona Lisa to paint by numbers. You just lose something in there. It's not the same, right? But to have a God who thinks and who sees and who hears and who speaks and who feels and who knows, oh, that's a whole different kind of God. It is different from any other God of any other religion in the world, except for the Jewish God. Man, does it ever boggle your mind that God wants to have a relationship with you? With you. With me. I don't understand it. In fact, the only way I kind of can understand it would be simply that because I'm a parent and a grandparent. Now, if you're a parent or grandparent, you'll understand this. If you're not yet, hopefully someday you will get a chance to understand it. For those of you who are parents and grandparents, can I just ask you a very simple question? Why did you have them? It's not because they're inexpensive, because they're not. What do the statistics say? It's between $250,000 and $300,000 to raise a child from age zero to 18. Every child. Is it because they do a lot of work around the house? No. You know what it is? It's that first time they smile at you and they recognize you. It's the first time they throw their arms around your neck. Oh, man, it means the world. You'd do it all over again. Many of you did. Right? That God would love us that way, that God would appreciate that. I mean, I don't understand it. God doesn't need it, but he loves it. He desires it. He is a God who is with, and Jesus stands face to face with God himself. He's always been his own person. He always will be his own person. He is very high touch. And he's in touch with you. But then he finishes with a mic drop in verse 1, and he just simply says this, and the word was God. Boom, there it is. There are a lot of people in the world that want Jesus to be something less. They would like for Jesus to be just a man. They would like for Jesus to be just a prophet. Maybe just a great guy. Maybe just a very smart individual or someone who is very, very intelligent. They would like him to be, you know, maybe important, but they wanted to be less than God, maybe a part God, maybe a God. But could I just tell you this, and I'll save you all the technicalities of the Greek language here because we could get massively technical. You don't need it. But here's what you need to know. If you are using the rules of Greek grammar and syntax, there's absolutely no way possible you can construe this statement to mean anything other than what it actually says, and that is Jesus is literally God in the flesh. He is God. Not just a God, not just a demigod, not just partly God. He is God. And these four phrases, if we put them all together here in these first two verses, these four phrases combined together to give us the very first mind-blowing aspect that I want to look at, and that's just simply this. Jesus is the eternal God of the universe. This is the persistent theme throughout the book of John, by the way. It is stated directly in several places. Actually, it's stated in chapter 1 when he says, Nobody has seen God at any time. Only the begotten of God, or the begotten God who is from the Father, only he can exegete him or, or show us who he is, right? In chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus, uh, and, and chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus is, uh, the, the religious rulers are really mad at him because he's making himself equal to God. 
but also indirectly throughout the book of John, there are seven statements called the seven I am's, the self-identity statements of Jesus found throughout the book of John that show us really what Jesus actually thought about himself and what he actually claimed about himself. And you're familiar with many of these. I am, in chapter six, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Chapter eight, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I give up my life for the sheep. Chapter 10 again, I am the door of the sheep. The sheep go in and out through me, and they find pasture and abundant life, and I give life to them. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. All indirect statements to Jesus' identity and what he thought about himself. And what's maybe most explicit in these is how Jesus phrases it. He uses an intensive form in the Greek language, ego eimi, I myself am. I myself am the bread of life. I myself am the light of the world. I myself am the good shepherd. I myself am the door of the sheep. On and on and on and on and on. I myself am. And maybe it's stated most explicitly in chapter 8, verse 58, when in a debate with the Pharisees about Abraham and his, uh, uh, who Jesus thinks he is, they said, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, oh, if you only knew. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. He said, because before Abraham was born, I am. He uses the Old Testament covenant name of God, Yahweh, the one who is. I am. Not I was. I am. And they totally understood it because immediately afterwards they sought to, to stone Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. This is the theme throughout the entire book of John. Jesus is the eternal God of the universe. So what does it mean to you? What would that mean to you? I can tell you two things that at least that it means to me. And one is this. Man, he's beyond your brain. He is beyond your brain. Look, I believe that our faith is one of the most intelligent, rational, smart faiths in all of the world. I believe it rests on tremendous foundations of evidence. And I think, man, it makes a lot of sense. But you will not be able to make sense of everything. The faith that we live out defies rationality all the time. It defies being put into a box. You can't simply just like put it together and feel like it all just makes perfect sense. There are going to be things about this that are going to have mystery, and we must allow for mystery to be here. If we serve a supernatural God, he will be mysterious. Right? And you just simply cannot box him in. I know we want certainty. I know if you're sitting out there and you're not yet in the faith, you're going to say, well, I want 100% certainty. I want to be 100% certain that Jesus is who he says he is. You will never get it. We don't have 100% certainty in anything in life. You have no 100% certainty that you're going to leave this place today, climb in your car, and make it home. You have no certainty when you climb on an airplane that you are going to make it to your destination. Most of you came in here and you sat in a chair. You did not test it out. You just believed it was going to hold you. It might not have, right? Anyone here married? Right? Did you know everything about your spouse before you made the decision to get married? Like everything you needed to know? No. I sure didn't. 
And if you were to talk to my wife, she would tell you she sure didn't. You don't know everything, but you know enough. You have a degree of certainty, a large degree of certainty. that You know enough to make that life-altering decision. And it's the same way with spiritual faith. Man, he's beyond your brain. So don't expect that you're ever going to get 100% certainty about him. There will always be mystery involved. But then there's the second thing, and that's this. He's bigger than life. He's bigger than life. If he made everything, if he's eternal, then all of our human problems, all the things we're going through are dwarfed by his presence. He is bigger than COVID, you guys. He's bigger than mental health. He is bigger than depression. He's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than the abuse or the wounds you suffered when you were young. He is bigger than what you are facing right now and the challenges that are before you. He is bigger than your problems and your issues and your addictions. He's bigger. And I don't know about you, but I need a God that's bigger than life. I need a God who is big enough to handle everything that I will encounter, everything that will be thrown at me. I need a God that's that big. And Jesus is that person. Now, we got to keep going because we're only past one thing and we got five of them. All right, here we go. We're going to keep going. So another mind-blowing aspect here, all right, is that Jesus is the personal designer of life. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. That is stressing his personal agency. He was the personal agent of creation. And without him was not anything made that was made. There are two Greek words you can use for creation here. The normal word is ektidzo, but John uses a different Greek word, ginomai. All things came into being, or all things happened, he says. Now, the idea behind this is simply this. Ektidzo focuses on the power, the capacity to create something, the ability to create it. But ginomai focuses on the idea of personal investment in making something. Like, when you, when you make cookies for your daughter's softball team, you have invested part of yourself in that. Yeah. And what this kind of tells us this is that as, God, as Jesus made the world as the active creative agent, that he threw himself into the work, heart, mind, body, and soul, that he threw himself into the work of creation. And it means this, he's the resident expert on life. He is the resident expert on life. Why would we ever think that Jesus wasn't smart enough to know about human beings, to know about human nature, to know about psychology? Why would we think that Jesus, being the most intelligent, intelligent, brilliant person ever to walk the face of the planet, would get things wrong? But time and time again, we do that. But if we could just get in our mind, he's the resident expert. When Jesus says to do something, it makes sense to do it. When Jesus tells us to go this direction, it makes sense to go that direction. Why do we question? Why do we waffle? He is the resident expert. And I can tell you, he offers really three things. There's a lot of things he offers in this, but three things that are important to me. I hope they're important to you, and that's this. He offers flawless guidance. Think about this. When an inventor invents something, he throws himself into the work, and he knows every single facet and aspect of the thing, of, of the thing that he's created, everything about it. He knows its ins, its outs. He knows how it works. He knows how it's supposed to work at its optimum kinds of levels, at its maximum capacity. He knows everything about that, all the specs, all the design, everything about it. He knows exactly how everything is supposed to work and how he's created it to work. 
So when Jesus offers us guidance on things, it's flawless. Man, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank. Secondly, and this is, I think, important as well, belonging. To know that he has made you and I means that we belong to him, right? There's something about that. When you belong to someone, when you belong to a family, when you belong to a group of people or a club, when you are part of things, when you belong to a church, man, there's something about that that's powerful for us. In the movie Toy Story, uh, you may remember this if you've seen the movie, Woody, one of the main characters, is really frustrated with Buzz Lightyear, the action figure. And uh, Buzz Lightyear actually believes he's a space ranger. Uh, He actually believes he can fly. He actually believes he has these powers. He really believes he's a space ranger. And Woody just gets frustrated, and finally he just says to him, Buzz, don't you know? You're you're just a toy. You're just a child's plaything. You're not really a space ranger. But Buzz still believes that he is until that fateful day when he discovers he cannot fly, that he doesn't have special powers, that he's just an action figure. And he is sitting on the ground and he's saying to himself, I'm just a stupid, dumb, meaningless toy. But Woody comes over and he begins to to talk to him. He says, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, Buzz. I don't don't think you're thinking straight. I don't think you're thinking clearly about this. He said, you see that house over there? There's a kid that lives in that house. And he's crazy about you. And you know why he's crazy about you? It's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. And he looks at his foot and he sees Andy written across the bottom of his foot. Ah, to belong to the God of the universe. Unbelievable. There's a final thing that it offers to us, and that's healthy guidelines. That kind of goes along with the, the second one here, the idea of belonging. That God made this universe and this world. This is his home. This is his place. This is his creation. This is his universe. I get to be a part of it. That's a great privilege, but I am just a guest. It doesn't belong to me. And I don't even belong to myself. And what that does is that actually establishes healthy guidelines because God has said, here's how I want things to run. And I'd love for you to align yourself with those things because everything as I've designed it to run is healthy. Everything's good for you if you follow this. And it just establishes those healthy guidelines. My daughter, when she was away at college, came back one summer, the first summer that she was back, and uh, she came back and she was living in our house and she was working and those things like that, but she, she had established a pattern that she didn't really need to check in with us about stuff. You know, like, like she wanted to stay out until three in the morning, not let us know where she was, which was fine. She's like, hey, I did this in college. I mean, I didn't have to call you in college. I said, I don't want you to call me for permission. I said, but we want to establish safety for you. And I said, if you don't call and tell us or you don't let us know where you're going, then we don't know where you are and when you're going to be back. It's not a straitjacket. It's just designed to protect you in this. She's like, well, I don't know why I have to do this. I said, because you're under my roof right now. (laughs) This is my house, my rules, you know. We want to do things that will keep you safe, right? It's just the way God is. And it establishes very healthy boundaries for us. We have tremendous freedom within those guardrails, but the boundaries are there. Here's how life works. Here's how it works best. Violate it, it won't work well for you. Violate it, you won't work well. Yeah? 
There's a third mind-blowing aspect. We see it starting in verse four. In him was life. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. Life. The Greeks had three different words for life. Bios, which was biological life, life in its biological manifestations. It had also suke, which is the idea of psychological life, the soul, suke. Right? But there was a third one, and it took life and it elevated to a whole different quality level. It's called zoe. And this is the word that Jesus uses throughout the book of John. Zoe. You see this as life which is qualitatively different, exponentially different than regular life. And you see this also in the seven I am statements that we talked about earlier, right? I am the bread of life, zoe. I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, zoe. I am the good shepherd. I give up my life for the sheep so that they can have life. I am the door of the sheep. The sheep go in and out through me, and there they find abundance and pasture and life. I am the resurrection and the, I am the way, the truth, and the, I am the true vine. I have the, 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 the life throwing, flowing through the branches, flows uh, through the vine, flows into the branches. The life of that vine flows through and bears much fruit. All the way through, Jesus uses this terminology, zoe, life, 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 life. If you're in this room or you are out there and you're watching online and you are without Jesus, you are missing a piece of life the most important piece, the piece that energizes everything else about you. And you're just living half a life. Why would you want to just live half a life? And it brings us to this fourth mind-blowing aspect, which is kind of connected to this, and that's this, Jesus is the life activator. The life activator. Look at the second half of verse four. And that life was the light of men. And that life was the light of men. This pegs Jesus as the energizer and the activator of life for human beings. So I want you to imagine all of your great faculties and capacities and abilities and your strengths that you own. I want you to imagine the fact that what really makes you tick is Jesus. That he has energized all those different things and taken them to a whole different quality level. He's infused his life into all of those normal, regular things that everyone has, but he brings them to an entirely different level. He activates them. He makes them come alive in a certain kind of way. He's the light of life. And then he integrates and coordinates it all together into a whole life system. I just like to say it this way. He brings people to life. Jesus brings people to life. And that life was the light of men the light of men. When we are without Jesus, we live in diminished capacity as human beings. We don't work right. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, if there's a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anyone or anything else. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. But I like what C.S. Lewis says even better. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn. He is the food that our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. In him was life, and that life was the light of the world. 
Now there's a final mind-blowing aspect, and then we'll be done. He's the conquering hero. Look at verse 5. And that light shines out into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This describes the mind-bending, pervasive, comprehensive impact of Jesus and his followers on the rest of the world over the last 21 centuries. That Jesus, and then through his followers, has impacted our lives and our cultures in ways you probably don't even realize. But think about it. If Jesus had never come, what would we be missing on? What would life be like for us? And then just think about some of these things. The system of jurisprudence drawn completely from the values that Jesus espoused. Educational theory, the care of children, which in that culture in that time had no value whatsoever in the culture. Healthcare, women's rights, children's rights, racial equality, economic systems, all of them find their current kind of uh, ideas and concepts flow from the values of Jesus in Western culture. The world we live in would be radically different if Jesus never showed up, never been here, never said what he said, did what he did, accomplished the work that he accomplished. You would have none of these things. And I like how John phrases it, and the light shines, present tense, continuous action, it keeps on shining. The light shines out into the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. John uses a wrestling term here. The idea is that of dominating another person that someone could not get out of a dominating position. And the great unbending truth of physics is simply this. Light can never be dispelled by darkness. Darkness can never dispel light. But light will always dispel darkness. It will always do it. The impact that Jesus has had on our world, unknowingly by most of us, is so comprehensive and so pervasive, it's mind-boggling. Dallas Willard talks about it this way. Most of what is popularly deemed best and good in the world can be traced directly to the transformative influence of Jesus. This is true of both the past as well as now, as his influence continues on in the life of his people. And when Jesus had resurrected and was ascended into heaven, Jesus created his, a new body, a new physical manifestation of him in the world called the church. That's you. And you, 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 and me. The church. They would become his new body in the world. They would be his voice, his hands, his feet. They would change the world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit flowing in and through them, they would change cultures and societies and marriages and families. They would change everything. Because Jesus is the giver of life. And one of my favorite stories happens in John chapter 9, which is right after John chapter 8 where Jesus talks about himself being the light of the world. And as he's in a debate with the Pharisees after that conversation that he has being the light of the world, they move out of that, he and his disciples, down through Jerusalem, out through one of the city gates. And there there's a blind man who's been blind from birth. And he's, just, he's begging there at the gate like most of them did. And so Jesus and the disciples walk through, and all of a sudden the disciples stop and they say, Jesus, wait a minute, hold on. Like, this blind man, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. See, they thought it was the result of sin that he was, had this physical disability. He says, neither, but that the glory of God should be manifested in and through him. 
And then Jesus does something. He bends down to the ground in front of the man. He doesn't say anything. And he takes some dust out of the ground. Now I want you to think about yourself being this blind man. You've never seen in your life. Right? And all of a sudden you hear... (laughs) Now you've heard that sound before probably. It was never good. And then you hear... And Jesus mixes the dirt, the saliva. And then he stands up and he just bends over and he begins to anoint the man's eyes. And John uses a word that's highly creative. It's, it's less of the idea of like, it's more the idea of painting. He creates new eyes for this man. He recreates eyes out of the clay. Just go wash in the pool of Siloam. Guy goes and washes and he sees again for the very, sees for the very first time. He doesn't see again. Sees for the very first time. In him was life, and that life was the light of the world, and the light shines out into the darkness. The darkness could never overcome it, and it still hasn't. And you know what? Jesus is still doing it. He is still overcoming addictions. He's still putting marriages back together. He's still healing diseases and sickness. He's still helping people punch through difficult habit patterns and destructive things that are going on in their lives. He's still putting broken relationships back together in families. Jesus is still doing this. He's still doing signs and wonders and miracles in the world. He's still at work. And the thing that I want you to know more than anything this morning is simply this, and he is still available to do it for you. He's still doing it, and he can do it for you. And if you're someone here who's never, ever crossed the line into faith in Christ, but maybe you've been thinking about this, maybe you've been checking him out and trying to see whether Jesus is the person that you want to give your life to, I want to encourage you, maybe today's your day. Maybe today will be the time when you say, I want this. I'm so sick of living the way I'm living. I'm so sick of dealing with what I've been dealing with. I need Jesus. I need Jesus to give me a new life. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, man. Make that decision today. I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of this message to do just that. But Lord, if you're not ready, if you just are not ready to do it yet, then I want you to encourage you. That's okay. We're not trying to pressure you. But what I would say is this. Man, stay in the hunt. Keep asking questions. Keep seeking. Keep looking. Keep kicking the tires and slamming the doors and trying to see if Jesus is who you really need in your life. And here's what I truly believe. That if you seek, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart, he will be found. And man, stay in the hunt. And if you need resources, we have some resources at the Connect uh, area, the Connect Center in the back today. You can go back and grab those. Just ask for them. If you make a decision today, make sure you grab those resources so they can get you going on your next steps. But for the rest of us, here's, I guess, what I want to say. Whatever it is you need, whatever it is you're facing, Jesus is here for you. He is bigger than any of those things. And I want to encourage you that maybe you would be someone who would say, you know what, I need to take a deeper dive. I'm going to start reading through the book of John or the book of Mark or one of the Gospels. I want to look at Jesus afresh and anew in a different kind of way. I want to see him again. And what I hope will happen is that you will breathe in and be recaptured by the wonder of who Jesus is. And that being recaptured by that wonder, that you will give more of yourself to him. Because he's worth it, man. He is worth it.
I'm going to ask the prayer team to come on up, and they're going to be here available for you. If you've decided to, to maybe make that decision, please feel free to come up and pray for them. I'll be up here as well. I'd love to talk with you. You can go to the back to the Connect Center. But we're just going to pray together, and let me pray for you. Is that all right? Yeah. Good. Let's pray. Lord, for many, many, many of us here who belong to you, man, there's nothing better for us, Jesus. To belong to you is the greatest thing in the world. It grounds us. It inspires us. It moves us and it motivates us. And Lord, sometimes we lose that wonder of what it is. So we pray simply that you would restore that wonder to us. That as we watch you, as we interact with you, as we relate to you, that you would just, in a fresh way, restore who you are to us. And when we, want to th- we want to thank you that you are an eternal God who is near and not far away, who is life, gives life, and man, who is unstoppable in the world. And Lord, we want to give you more of ourselves today. And whatever it is you've spoken to, what, who, anyone out here, Lord, I pray that they in just a small way or a large way would give themselves over to you. And Lord, for those who might be here today and they have never, ever given their heart and their life to you. Lord, I pray for them today. Would you enable them to just see that you have been reaching down your hand to them for a long time and that you are still reaching for them? And God, I pray that they will stretch out their hand, they will reach up, they will embrace you with all they have, all they are. And they will become a follower of you for the rest of their lives. And Lord, Help them to know they can just do it very simply by just asking you. I give them to you, Lord, and I know you will do the work that you're going to do. So, Lord, we love being in this place. We love being together. More than anything else, Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for this time together. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. amen.